Welcome back to another episode of Not All at Once. I'm Jordan Guess. And I'm Kendall Y. We're back. It is Thursday. <clears throat> back Thursday again. Morning. Yes. Short week off, but glad to be here. Back in Louisville. Are you in Louisville? I am in Louisville. All righty. People always laugh about how we say Louisville whenever. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up because you said it the... You said it the normie way. Louisville. <laughs> it's Louisville. It's one syllable. Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm back um, Back in the coffee shop. Quills Coffee. So shout out. Um, and yeah, there's a little bit of news happening. So figured it was a good time this morning for us to uh talk through what is going on so what yes, have you sir. been listening to this week i mean been jumping into any content podcast or newsletter let's see yeah this week i subscribed to um <clears throat> ben thompson's new are you familiar with who ben thompson is no I he runs that name he runs um a little content business called stratechery and okay. uh, they actually just mainly focus on like sort of technology and consumer technology, but they always tie in business, which I find to be interesting. So I've been listening to that. Okay. I listened to, there's a lot of news on the Figma stuff. We could talk about Figma actually. Yeah. We haven't talked right. about that. Um, and then, For how many billion? It was like 18 billion or 30 billion. Well, it was 20 billion. But it was half cash, half stock. And after the announcement went on, the the, the stock dropped like 20%. So they immediately lost like $2 billion. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, from everyone, from like every corner of designer world, um, people who use Figma, the sentiment has been bad. Like they're upset that it happened. They understand why they exited, but not happy about the implications is the general take i've heard yeah adobe's just one of those like really old companies i'm looking at the chart right now they ipo'd in 1986 so wow it's one of those like dinosaur companies so i can understand why people would be not happy about it i think they've said that they're not going to change it at least change it anytime soon um but inevitably they will they definitely will right and they're just saying that to try to obviously make it look like it's a good, you know, a good investment for them that people shouldn't like run for the doors kind of thing. It feels like so Figma is a, it's a but, testament. It's a testament to I mean, the, those the founders of Figma absolutely killed it. Like they spent. This is, in my opinion, the way that the, a lot of startups should operate. This is very atypical. And if you talk to VCs, they're usually uncomfortable with this. But Figma spent like four years, four or five years in no man's land. Like they didn't even know what exactly it was they were trying to build. Hmm. And, and even after four or five years, they finally settled on the product, but it took them like another three or four years to figure out monetization. Okay. And, um, the thing about, so here's the thing about SaaS, SaaS products, which I've worked on quite a bit. SaaS products require the end user to learn something there's a learning curve for mm -hmm. the user. so it's not something that can be changing frequently because the end user is resistant to change because they don't want to have to learn new things right so it's really really important with SaaS products that you sort of like form it up correctly initially like from day one whenever you del deliver it to the customer most of that core experience needs to be um, consistent forever because as an end user, it's like you would almost rather use a whole new product and like take a risk on a whole new product than try and relearn something new that like you, you're skeptical about. It's like basically in a SaaS product, anytime there's like an evolution, the users will never be happy. They won't, even if it's like definitely a, a pro, like a prog progress, like, a logical pro pro progression the users will never be happy 
So so Figma did this. Figma's pretty much been mostly the same since day one after they got past the no man's land. And um, yeah, that's why I think it's like Adobe even tried to build a Figma competitor, but mm-hmm. Adobe, but they're just like, they're not qualified to, it's like, there's like, I think I'm trying to comment on a brand value. There's like a brand value that you have to consider whenever you're, whenever you're working on these types of products. Yeah. And it seems like now Adobe is just trying to gobble up their, their, one of their bigger competitors, right? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. I mean, I think there is there is like discussions around antitrust. I think that it'll go through. I don't think antitrust will stop it. I don't think antitrust probably should stop it. Um, it's definitely like a in some ways a defensive move by Adobe. I guess probably mostly mm-hmm. mostly it's a defensive move. But but Adobe also has things that like are in their product suite that Figma doesn't do and can never do so i think there is like a a potential for like um like a sort of horizontal platform product where figma is kind of at the core and things like video editing and photoshop editing are sort of peripheral around figma um Hmm. so i think i think there is like a potential growth opportunity here as well but but I, i side with you i think that it's more like this is a defensive move and Figma is probably doomed. <laughs> They've been swallowed by the whale. That's right. And now they just, I mean, I don't know if we had that conversation on, I don't know if we, this conversation was on air or not last week, but you know, it just, it just happens naturally where organizations just get so large that it's just difficult to steer the ship. And so it just gets gobbled up by this, like, I don't know, like political um, messiness, I guess, where when you're a smaller company, you're just able to actually make changes and implement things and pivot. And yeah, I just think it's going to be a tough road for the user and probably the employees who are working there to transition. So totally. But we'll keep an eye on that. So the other the other stock that uh, we didn't talk about, but uh, was very interesting. I was actually talking about it with my dad a little bit at lunch yesterday because he works for a competitor to FedEx. He works for UPS, but man, FedEx they uh, they took a hit. I guess a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago. And I don't think they've bounced back. Did you see that? It was like a twenty, it's like a twenty percent drop, and it was the largest drop in like twenty years. Mm-hmm. yeah they, they missed they, earnings they fell off a cliff for sure yeah it was a 20 percent drop <clears throat> apparently the interesting thing about fedex is that it's a really good leading indicator for the for the real economy and so right. people are were like commenting on that and being like oh there's like a lot of chaos on the way yeah, like that was one of the first things that Luke Groman talked about in his um, most recent uh, Tree Rings report was, I, can't, I think it was Alan Greenspan said that he would ha- regularly have calls with the CEO of FedEx, not this current one, but the previous one. And uh, just because it was such a leading indicator as to what was going to happen in the rest of the economy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just... I mean, on on September fifteenth, the, the FedEx, the current CEO said he expects the economy to enter a worldwide recession. So, as Dang. of this recording, that was one week ago exactly. Um, so, yeah, they just they fully withdrew their their uh, year, you know, their guidance for the year, and then they also just posted a massive decline in in their operating income. So. Not good. You know, it's funny. I was asking my dad, I was just curious, like, because I don't follow, I don't follow UPS stock very closely, but he said it's, um, it stayed pretty steady. Like it did not experience the same, um, you know, it did not experience the same decline. So it was, it's just out there for speculation. What was this a specific FedEx 
issue or is this a global you know supply chain issue mm-hmm. um and i'm not sure so i'm looking at this definitely <clears throat> something to keep an eye on i'm looking at the chart right now and they were at the same price as they are at right now back in july of 2014 they have eight years at zero they wiped out and they're probably not a uh, they might pay a dividend they do pay a dividend and you you know it's i was also reading lynn alden's newsletter this morning and uh it was one of her (laughs) she had to come out and be like Man, I'm sorry, guys, because it, it was in her portfolio that she recommends, you know, <laughs> a, a, diver- a, a diversified portfolio. I think she said it represented like 1% of one of the funds that she has. But uh, she was like, yeah, it was in my dividend paying portion uh, fund. And she was like, even though it was a small position, uh, that big of a drawdown is, is definitely not good. So, you know. Everyone out here is is doing their very best, but if you if Lynn Alden didn't see it coming, then uh, you know she's a very smart lady. So doom all, and gloom, all... doom, doom and gloom. <laughs> if it bleeds, it leads. Is there any good news today, Kendall? Um, Can we start off with any good news? I don't know. No, there's no good news. <laughs> <laughs> The good news is that if you're listening to this, you woke up this morning, we woke up this morning, um, and that's just about it, probably. And it's a beautiful so, day. It's actually a really nice day outside. It is a very nice day. Not too hot. Apparently, oh, by the way, back in Louisville, so, oh, I already said that, maybe. Yeah, you're, you're I think I already said that. Europe. Yes. Well, I... I only say that because I think that I maybe brought like a heat wave because yesterday was hot and I don't know, was it hot the uh the few days prior? Like has it been hot this week? Yeah. Today feels last, a little bit cooler. Yeah, the last like four days it was pretty, pretty damn hot. To I think okay. today today is like the first day of fall, actually. I don't think that it's um I think the heat might be past us. Might may have one That's little good. may have one more little surge of heat. But if I'm I'm looking at the forecast right now and it looks promising. I don't like the heat. Okay. Not a fan. Not a fan. Yeah. All right. Well, that's enough for the good news. As for <laughs> <laughs> as for the bad news, I mean, the first headline that I woke up to this morning as I was laying in bed, waking up, was from the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you have much to comment on this, but it the headline reads, Japan jumps into market to buy yen for first time in 24 years currency rallies. I mean, this is this is not this is not good, right? Even though their currency is rallying, like the fact that they're having to step in here and pretty much back their own currency by my understanding is printing more currency is is not good, right? I don't know. I'm not familiar with what they're doing exactly there's some okay. like there's probably some detailed nuance which i could go figure out but i don't know off the top of my head the okay. uh, I, I do know some, like some like some broad patterns here which is okay a little, little bit of history history lesson for you guys japan is like the leading modern economy you know different economies industrialized at different times like the U.S. went through a big industrialization period in like the early 1900s, late 1800s even. Um, and then we financialized at some point, probably the later 1900s. Anyway, the point is, is that Japan is like the 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 um, the economy that is people sort of think is like the furthest ahead. Right. They're like sort of leading the charge, in like what we think of modern economics. Um so like in the 80s japan's economy was booming like it was booming so much that people thought that like japan was going to take over the world like people thought it, the the movie the movie blade runner has um i think like basically it's, it takes place in like 2040 or something or 2050 2049 and the 
world is like taken over by Japan, basically. And Blade Runner was mm. already made in the 80s. So Japan's economy was booming and primarily because of its consumer technology. So it had a bunch, you know, like companies like Sony, Nintendo. There's a ton of them, right? Yeah. And Japan experienced a massive, massive bubble, like mostly an equity bubble, but probably an everything type of bubble in in the 80s. I think it was. I think it was in the 80s. And um, and so basically ever since that, so that bubble crashed, just like we had a, a tech bubble in 2000, it was kind of the same thing, but 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So they had a, they had the bubble, everything crashed. And basically ever since then, their economy has been highly centralized, dependent upon the central bank, right? So the central bank, yeah. what we think of like quantitative easing and like what the Fed has been doing for like the past decade, Japan's been doing for like four decades. And like right. they, and this is how far it goes, actually. So the Fed, the Fed buys bonds, partic- specifically they've in the past, they've, they've bought obviously government bonds which are treasuries and i'm sure i'm sure it's like municipal there's like state and local bonds too and then mm-hmm. they also have bought mortgage-backed securities which is a you know a, a real estate bond and then starting in COVID, actually one of the big things they changed in the COVID crash was they started to buy corporate bonds which mm-hmm. means that they corporate you know corporate debt which is um interesting they're sort of getting closer to the the corporate uh uh, world so japan <clears throat> japan straight up buys equities okay so they are <laughs> they like you know it's not it's really really risky business to get in the equities game because equities are so volatile um, yeah and you 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 risk you run a higher risk of insolvency as a central bank whenever you start buying equities but um but yeah so my broader point here is japan has been um most of Japan's economy is probably on their central bank's balance sheet at this point, like probably greater than 50%. Uh, so so people look to Japan. A lot of people in the West look to Japan and they're like, whenever people are like, well, you can't just print money all the time. You can't just quantitative easing. Yeah. The the counter argument is like, well, Japan's been doing it for 30, 30 40 years and look, they're fine. Um, yeah. And I think I think Japan's debt to GDP ratio is like, 370 percent or something and uh yeah yeah i've got it pulled up because okay. yeah i knew that it was insane like in 2020 it was 259 percent let's yeah. see if we can find um it says only 250 let's see if that's and I yeah. think I don't know if it's I don't know if it's gone over two or over three. Over I think three. it's still close to like two sixty to two fifty in that range. So that's that's like the Larry Summers counter argument with um with the whole like quantitative easing is that like Japan did it and they're fine. Um yeah, but don't you feel like there's such a difference between the United like comparing Japan to the United States is to me feels so just like such an apple to apple to oranges. I don't know. It just feels like the United States plays such a larger role in the global economy. Um, especially with like, just like the whole import export and um, all the finance. I don't know. It just feels like we're a different player than Japan is. And so maybe they were able to do it, but the global economy is not yen based it's dollar based and so you yeah, know that's, does... that's the kicker that's the kicker okay there's obviously there's a lot of differences in our industrial base and like our our uh our the makeup of our economies but the real kicker is that we have the global reserve currency the world is dependent upon our currency and yeah. so so yeah i think i think that's and the, the world wants our currency right i mean the yen is only used on this tiny island in the you know southeast asia whereas the dollar is sought after all over the world so yep yeah and there's um i think this year too uh you'll hear something you'll probably hear something in the news at some point about swap lines so the our central bank will actually 
is starting to backstop Japan even. And because mm. Japan is basically, people are thinking that Japan is so close to basically insolvency. Mm-hmm. Like that, um, that the U.S. Federal Reserve is now getting involved, and basically what that means is is that we take over their economy. Like that's <laughs> sort of in the layman's terms. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about it either, really, to have a uh, you know constructive discussion about it, but. It just to me the the fact that it's the first time it's happened in a quarter century it's pretty big, um, and from everything I've listened to, it's like the you like pretty much watching the euro and watching the yen right now, and, and how they're falling or they're both weak relative to the U.S. dollar is just a is a big issue for both of those areas of the world. So yeah, the way you could wait. The way you got to think about, sorry, I'm, I'm dwelling on this, but I know you're fine. You're but fine. I do think this is, I do think this is important. Uh, the, the way, <clears throat> the way you got to think about FXs for foreign exchanges, currencies, basically the way, the way you think about currencies is it's a measure of the propensity of that economy to repay its debt. So mm. it's like, how likely are they to be able to repay the outstanding debt load? So as as the euro goes down, as the Japanese yen goes down, as the Chinese yuan goes down, what that means is um, the market thinks that they are less and less likely to repay their outstanding debts. The Dixie, the dollar, is a little bit different. I mean, it's the same in that we it, it does measure. It, it also is a measure of how likely we are to repay our debts, but since we are the reserve currency it's a it's slightly different we because currencies are relative so we're measuring our currency relative to their currency so it could mm-hmm. be like you you could have a scenario which i would argue this this is the scenario we're in right now where the dollar index is actually going up but it's actually becoming less likely that the americans will be able to repay their debts Right. So, mm-hmm. so it, it doesn't, since it's the reserve currency, it doesn't always track that, that line of thinking. Yeah. I mean, based on what I'm, what I've heard, it's like, there's, there's just not a way that we can repay the debt at this point, even the U S just because, I mean, if you listen to Peter Zion, it's like strictly from a number of people standpoint, we just won't be able to conjure up enough economic activity in the next two to three decades to actually get it under control. So, so then it kind of, yeah, I mean, you kind of go down the path of, well, what if the U S just tries to do what Japan has been doing for two or three decades, you know, what does that look like? And obviously I don't think anybody knows exactly what that looks like, but uh, probably feels like a debt spiral. (laughs) Probably what that looks like is America actually surges ahead. America, you get sort of a debt jubilee in America, and we mm-hmm. have we have onshoring, reindustrialization. It's probably be good for America, honestly. And then basically mm-hmm. everywhere else in the world will be wrecked, and then frontier and emerging markets will be will be the first to adopt Bitcoin. Of course, I had to bring it back <laughs> to Bitcoin. You know, what's happening in El Salvador is actually they're trying to, I think this is speculation, obviously, but I think that they're trying to front run this dynamic. I think they're trying, they basically, they see a future where the, the, the U.S. basically blows up their debt markets and says, screw this, we're, we're reindustrializing, we're onshoring, you know, F everybody else, basically. And at that point, mm-hmm. at that point, you're going to have if you're if you're a frontier or an emerging market you're going to be faced with a decision do you think you have the fortitude and the capabilities of rolling your own currency or are you going to go with a neutral reserve asset like a bitcoin or a gold and even if you intended oh god sorry you cut out just a little bit say do you want me to repeat yeah repeat maybe just repeat like the last 10 seconds the if so once once the US dollar blows everything up, 
the the frontier and emerging markets are going to be faced with a decision of do they want to roll their own currency, which takes a tremendous amount of uh, energy. It, it, it's difficult to roll your own currency, frankly. It's a it's a it's the wild west out there. Okay, the the, mm-hmm. the the big daddy dollar can come in at any time and and stomp you out. Okay, that's just the way the world works. Yeah. It sucks. So you're gonna have you're gonna have that decision to do that, or you can choose a neutral reserve asset like Bitcoin or gold. And probably the the most likely outcome is most markets will do some of both. They will they will they will do some Bitcoin and some gold, and then also try to start rolling their own currency as well. Yeah. Man, well, we don't have to get into the gold, but just quick comment on gold. It's just crazy how it has not performed. I love when people try to come at me about Bitcoin. I'm like, look, look at what Peter Schiff has been saying in during his career. And every pretty much like all the things have lined up for him in terms of predictions, except for the gold, you know, raging up yeah. to five or ten thousand, right? So that's how that's how that Eric um what's the macro voices guy's name? Eric Townsend. Eric Townsend. Townsend yeah. Yeah, he frames it. He's like everything that Peter Schiff said would happen happened. And yet the one thing that didn't happen is the price <laughs> of gold didn't go up. Um, yeah. It is very sad for gold. It is a sad. So, so pretty much like gold. nothing is acting. Like a lot of things are just not acting as, as you would expect. So, I mean, even I had someone message me on Instagram uh, yesterday and was like, yeah, the market's up after the fed rate increases. And I, and I just messaged back and I was like, yeah, that, that makes no sense. Well, essentially just saying that there's, you know, that a lot of things in the market are not acting accordingly. Right. And I guess on that Luke or on that, um, I think on that podcast with Townsend, they were, or the guy he was interviewing, I can't remember his name, but he was saying that the reason he, the only reason he can come up with why gold is not acting as it should as a hedge against all this kind of stuff is because it has been wrapped up in the exact system you know that it was supposed to be set apart from so it's been financialized and his whole point was if you're not holding physical gold you're just holding financial paper that represents gold then you have missed the mark and and like when enough people have done that it's just trading just like any other paper asset um, oh, not totally. like a physical commodity. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what's going on with gold. <clears throat> it's very sad for gold, but, uh, there's no way around that really. See, there's a physical problem with gold, which is that it's physically costly to secure and, and move around. Right. So you, you can't, you can't really democratize the ownership of gold, at least not feasibly. Right. Um, but, uh, but that's exactly, I mean, what's it going is on. tough to understand even how to buy physical gold, you know? I wouldn't even know. I don't, I wouldn't know how to do it. I've never Same. Yeah. Same. That's, and to me, when people are like, Bitcoin's too confusing, Bitcoin, this or that, it's like, I could teach a 10 year old how to buy Bitcoin. I do not know how to actually buy a physical gold. And my main concern is like, if I go into a store or something, how do I know I'm not just getting ripped off? Yeah. Because, you know what I'm saying? That's my main thing. Whereas at least with Bitcoin, I can verify with the blockchain. I mean, it's all the talking points, but it really is true when you get down to the gold versus Bitcoin, just take a person like who's in their 20s or 30s. Bitcoin is just 100x more uh, accessible in terms of purchasing and holding versus mm-hmm. gold, physical gold, not paper gold. Yeah. So. So here's a little, um, here's more perspective on the gold and neutral reserve asset, not to be overly like a tinfoily or like, um, um, sort of, uh, this is kind of, this is like what I'm about to say is a hard reality and it's difficult to accept, but, um, you know, I, I talked about this dynamic with emerging markets and developing markets and how they 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 can use a neutral reserve asset like gold to to backstop their their economic well-being they have to do that they're they're forced to do that because they can't you know building up uh, 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 a useful credit market is, is is a difficult thing to do 
but here's what can here's what the west can do right the west them the western leaders western leaders can can manipulate the price of prices of these assets and they can they can shoot it up whenever they know like these emerging markets are buying and they can dump the price whenever the emerging markets are having to sell so um so it's a tough world if you're not the united states <laughs> yeah yeah it's de- like that is more and more what i'm coming to like you know people are asking me how was the trip to europe the main takeaway is it was fun but i'm glad i'm in the united states because <laughs> it's seriously like and that happens a lot with me with travel is just i come back and have like this renewed appreciation of the country in which i live and uh, obviously the united states is not perfect but it is it is a lot better than um than every other place on earth no matter what people try to say about healthcare or cost of living or anything like that and the biggest thing we're going to learn is just the fact when you look around, you see lights on. <laughs> I mean, we're taking, everyone takes that for granted, but um, not, that will not continue. We will not take that for granted anymore. We will, based on what you're seeing on the news in the coming years, it'll be like, oh, wow. The fact that we have AC going and the light turns on when I do the switch, it's like, okay, we live in, we live in a good country. So, well, so it could be that bad. I'm, I'm actually increasingly of the opinion that, Here's what's gonna play out. This is sort of like my working working thesis. I think that um I think that Ukraine is gonna win the war. And I think that they're gonna win the war in about sometime in the spring, maybe March or April. Mm-hmm. And once that happens, then um the energy crisis is going to alleviate at least enough to where the energy crisis will no longer be sort of threatening the well-being of, of Western society. Mm-hmm. Um, but by that, here's, here's the kicker. The kicker is that um, the, the thing that's still unknown is how, how much the West is going to have to pay until that time. Right. It could still bankrupt us. Um, mm-hmm. just six months could bank bankrupt us. Um, so yeah, the, the, uh, so, you know, in the, in that world, re- actually reg- regardless of all of that, we're still in for an, inf- like a secular inflationary time period for like yeah. a, dec- a decade, probably. So it's going to be a decade of all sorts of financial shenanigans and craziness in the markets and, I wouldn't be surprised. Listen to this. Here's a here's a bold claim. I wouldn't be surprised if the S and P 500 is in the same location today as it will be in ten years. Okay, we might have a flat hmm. ten years. Okay, now that is which would be real. Would which would be negative in real terms? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I think maybe yeah. if you adjust it for inflation, we're flat. I think maybe that's the way you look at. It. I guess that's already happened. So yeah, I don't know. The yeah. point is, is that like the the world we're, we're moving into is less a world of growth and more a world of like refinancing, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm going to read this out of the tree, the tree rings, Luke Romans, um, just a small excerpt because I know it is paid. Um, but this is, uh, this is interesting. So it's talking about pretty much the dynamic between the US, the EU, Japan, you know, the whole energy crisis. And it says this, the implications of this for markets are straightforward. And there's four, there's four uh, possibilities that he lists out. So number one, the U.S. will send more energy to the EU and Japan to prevent their economic collapse at the expense of higher U.S. inflation. Or number two, the EU and Japan will find a miracle energy produ- productivity solution. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, number three, the EU and Japan will reach a an agreement more or less with Russia and fix the balance of trade crisis by agreeing to buy energy with printed Euro and uh, yen settle in uh, either physical gold or one of their currencies or the last possibility he lists out is says the EU and Japan will suffer late 1990s 
uh, Asian style currency and economic crising dri crisis driving a global economic and financial crisis that dwarfs the 2008 and 2020 crises. So <laughs> I read that this morning and I was like, gosh, really none of those sound good. None of those are great. What was the first one again? Sorry, can you repeat the first The one? first, yeah, the first one was the U.S. will send more money to the EU and Japan oh, right. to prevent uh, their economic collapse at the expense of higher U.S. inflation. To me, uh, that that one seems like the first, the first in line, potentially. Um, but then there was another thing that I saw that said that this morning that was saying shale uh, executives were saying you're on your own, Europe. We're not. We're not coming to save you. Um, and so mm, there's just uh, yeah. Let me see if I can find where that was. That's um. I've 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 had this debate in my head too because it's like, on one hand, it's going to if we if we send them a bunch of energy, then, um, it's probably good for our economy, right? We have good capital flows in that regard. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, it is inflationary for the consumer, and I don't know if we can sustain that at this time, right? Yeah. There is. I mean. Uh, president biden has the authority to to create an executive order that would stop all exports and that has been on the table hmm. there's also a geopolitical angle to this too and you know. right yeah the the geopolitical angle is that they're actually like trying to hurt they're trying to hurt russia by I can't remember what it was. It's it has something. To, you're talking about something to do with Russia, right? With the geopolitics. Of yeah, because basically, one framing of what's going on in the world right now in the Western world is that, you know, obviously Russia invaded Ukraine, but really what's happening is Russia and the United States are are they're at war basically, right? Yeah, and um, and obviously it's like a proxy war. So through right. through that through that framing, if you know, the 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 real leverage that Putin has or that uh, Russia has is is their energy energy markets, and um, if we want to, you know, defeat the enemy in this in this game, then we have to do so through through alleviating the the energy leverage. So yeah, yeah, it's very uh oh man, it's just all so complicated. So, cause, cause there's also you, there's like politics at home too. Right. Like, I mean, I watched, I don't know if you caught the 60 minutes where they interviewed Biden, I think this past Sunday night and uh, you know, sure. He's gotten some, some wins from uh, legislative victories, but he is um, I mean, there's a lot of struggle out there for Americans is for all of those wins is uh, his uh, you know, popular what do they call it the popular the polls is his popularity are like in the 40s you know so all that to say it's just um there's just a lot of things going on where you got to make decisions for like what is best for the either what is best for america or what is best for america and europe or do we just all kind of go into our own corners and say you're on your own best of luck to you kind of thing and then what does that do for the when it time comes that we need someone else's help for something in negotiations. Yeah. Did you, and then obviously the, the quote uh, from that 60 minutes where Biden said that we would defend Taiwan with, uh, with actual troops. And then, and then, yeah. the, and then the white house had to, had to walk that, <laughs> walk that back. Oh man, dude, that to me, that blows my mind. I cannot believe, and he said it twice, like, cause I think the guy, I don't even know the guy's name who interviewed him. I recognize him, but um, I think he was surprised when he gave the answer so straightforward. He was like, yes, we will send U.S. troops to defend the island of Taiwan. He was like, and he asked the question again and Biden was like, yes. And then I, I would just love to be in the room with their comms and PR team. <laughs> oh my house. gosh <laughs> you know the face palms were they were hard they were epic, they were epic. <laughs> oh man but it is uh i don't know i i guess like i don't know what to believe i guess it's the 
that is another big piece of all this is like who to believe, right? Because even in the Fed, there's like two camps and they're kind of like some are more dovish, some are more hawkish. And you're like, I don't know which one's going to win out. And then on the geopolitics side, it's like, well, would Biden actually like he's the commander in chief? So, I, I mean, sure, some staffer can come out and be like, no, he didn't mean to say that. But at the end of the day, like you're just some schmuck who just, you know, graduated maybe a few years ago. Like we're talking about the president said it himself two times. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know who to believe. And that makes everything very difficult <laughs> to like forecast. Yeah, totally. Well, that's what makes a market. That's what they say. You know? Yeah, that's true. So, but um the other the other piece, number two, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this miracle energy uh productive productivity solution? Do you have any thoughts on <laughs> I mean, is that even a possibility? I guess it's gotta there's something maybe, but maybe uh with fission is it nuclear fusion or fission that's like on the cusp of potentially solving the energy issue? Have you heard anything about this? Yeah, cold fusion is what it's called. And um, I think the idea is that it's like you can be it's just much more effective form of energy. Like it doesn't um, it's not as dangerous. You can make it smaller. You can Mm. it's basically nuclear like as we as we know nuclear without all of the added costs associated with it. Okay. Um, And there there there's a I guarantee you right now today. There are scientists sitting in a facility somewhere in California uh, trying to figure this out, and they are yeah. getting paid a lot of money to do so. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, in terms of the practical, practical matters of the energy miracle, it would have to be a nuclear solution. Um. I think that basically if you can get all of the ESG folks to surrender, um, then then you have a chance. If you just turn all of the nuclear plants back on in Europe, then probably might might that, that definitely would help. I'm sure that would play, play a substantial role. Maybe it's not a one 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 trick uh, solution, but but yeah, nuclear is the answer. Nuclear is the here's the thing. Nuclear is the logical next step in our energy, in our in the world of energy. The the world of renewables such as solar and wind and geothermal, they're just not gonna make it. Okay. NGMI. And here's the reason it's going why. to kill people. Yeah, here's the reason why. Doomberg, Doomberg actually frames this up very well. And by the way, I'm a fan of like solar and stuff. I think that there are gonna be use cases for it. Um, it's kind of good for like, you know, like off-grid cabin type scenario, or there are edge cases where, where it works, but to, to power the entire world on, on renewables, won't, it just won't work. And so the way Doomberg frames this up, Doomberg, I, I, I reference Doomberg quite a bit. Great, great content, Doomberg, um, is, you know, so we went from fire in, in the history of human civilization, we went from firewood to coal the oil and now we're like trying to get off oil right mm-hmm. and the thing about those three that progression is each step we went to a more energy dense solution so per per unit matter the energy was denser so like wood obviously not super efficient in terms of energy density coal is better you get more energy density you can transport it oil is even better even more better than coal um, and then if you took, if you look at like renewables, such as solar, wind, geothermal, these things are less energy dense. And so you're trying to create a solution that is less efficient basically. And, um, and keep in mind with like these renewables, you have to manufacture them. You got to transport them. You got to maintain them. There's a whole, there's a whole, like, there's like the iceberg, like underneath the surface, there's like a whole bunch of things that require energy just to even have the damn things. Um, so and a lot of the dirty energy that goes into actually getting those plants up and running and the materials produced and yeah, chips yeah. mined, like all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's another piece that people don't think about is like, 
well, how did we actually, what energy did we use to come up with these renewable solutions in the first place? Yeah. Western, Western people are like, oh, this, this thing showed up on my doorstep. It's magic. Like, it's like, it must've just landed here from God. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. okay. But I want to, I want to finish my thought here. Um, yeah. Cause so nuclear is the logical next step because it's consistent with that, with that progression. It is a more energy dense solution. I think the, I think the metric is something like one pellet of uranium, which a pellet is like the size of a pill almost, right? Maybe like a big pill. One mm -hmm. pellet of uranium has the same amount of energy as like 170 barrels of oil. Um, wow. And uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so it's just like way more uh, uh, energy dense, by the way, natural gas, natural gas is actually less, in, less energy dense than oil. But it's a first off, it's a byproduct of oil. So you just get it anyway. If you're getting the oil, you're getting the natural gas as well. And it's much more cleaner. So it actually does have a role to play in reducing our carbon footprint. I kind of see natural gas as like the, um, it's like the bridging solution, right? It's like the, it's like the, the thing that helps us transition to nuclear is, is natural gas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just gonna be tough. I mean, there's just so much just political and social um, capital, I guess, that's being that you're going running up against. Like, the, it's just such a strong headwind right now that it's like, if you if you even try to go against the narrative that we need to go carbon neutral, um, you just get you just get laughed out of the room. And or you're, you know, they just put a label on you like you, you want to see the earth burn or something, you know, it's, so it's just very tough. And, um, and it feels like so many other things in our society where there's just not a, um, there's not an honest conversation happening. Yeah. It seems like there's just only dishonest, motivated conversations. Because mm -hmm. the only, the other big thing about renewables is that we're, pouring so much money and giving out so much in subsidies that like, that's really the only way that it's been able to get to where it is. And it's still, there's no way it could be the solution. So yeah, it just that's feels good, very frustrating. It's a good perspective. If, if, it, if, uh, if a solution requires government subsidies to be, to be effective, then you should probably be skeptical of the solution. Yeah. That's not always true, but it's a good perspective. Yeah. No, and I'm with you too. Like there are, I think there definitely is some areas of like the energy mix that should and can be moved to renewable sources. But this going from like 100 to zero in terms of fossil fuels is just, it potentially is going to cripple our societies and yeah, bring people us are gonna, back, you know. They're going to learn the hard century. way. You're going to learn the hardware. <laughs> They're going to learn today. You're going to learn yep. today. Um, okay, so let's switch real quick. I got one more question for you. Uh, yeah. Um, I know we talked a little bit about it pre-recording. Um, what is your take right now on a bond? Like, let's just take a six-year bond. Or I'm sorry, a six-month bond. Right now, it's paying. The yield is upwards of, I think, 4%, right? Like four and a half percent, probably, maybe. So, like, what is there a play there to get a, you know, to get a more or less guaranteed return on your capital in that short amount of time? Like, is that is that a play that you would consider? Well, so here's the way the bonds the bonds work. Um, <clears throat> you the rates are annual. Right. So I don't know how, I think payouts are usually like monthly though. So you do get the payout, you know, before, before the, you don't have to hold it the whole year. Okay. Um, so there's two things you got, you got to, you have to consider it's opportunity cost. So you have to, if you think that you, that you have an asset, which can, which can grow it's purchasing power greater than the 4% yield, then you need to, you need to invest in that asset. If you think there are no assets that can that can increase in purchasing power relative to the four percent year yield, then then you go for the you go for the bond. And so, like, yeah, we're in in typically in these markets, 
you um typically when stocks go down bonds go up right that's like it's usually what happens because people will it's like a reflexive back and forth there's like a um, when stocks are down, you you want to hold bonds because they're denominated in dollars, and the dollar is basically growing relative to the to to, to the equity, which is dropping in price. So, um, so that's so typically yes. the The thing that I don't know about, but this has to be taken into equation because I've never traded bonds, is that bonds actually have a price too. So it's not. Right, you're not buying the the bond at the debt limit. Like, let's say you have a hundred million dollar bond, which was issued by the government or something, and you know that bond is worth a hundred million dollars because the the person who took out the loan has to pay that back. But in the in the in the market, it does it's not worth a hundred million dollars, right? It's worth it could be worth ninety million dollars. It could be worth one hundred ten million dollars even. Um, yeah, because it's a measure of. It's also a measure the the price of the bond is a measure of how likely it is that they're going to be able to repay it, just like with currencies. Remember, mm-hmm. um, so so the 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 problem here with if you bought bonds today is that you could buy a bond at price X with a yield of four percent, but six months from now the price of the bond has actually plummeted another ten percent, and so if you wanted to sell that bond. Sure, you would have had a four percent yield, but you would have had a negative six percent carry, right? Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah. Okay. So it's not as simple. It's not. It's. It's almost to me. It sounds a little bit like a dividend stock, where yes, you are potentially going to get a dividend. Obviously, it's not guaranteed like the bond payouts are, um, but the underlying asset the stock or the bond could go down. And so you could actually, if you wanted to sell, end up in the red. That's right. Is that, is that like, that's a good, okay. that's a good, that's a good framing. The, the, the one little nuance difference between the two is that equities tend to be much more volatile than bonds. Bonds mm-hmm. typically are stable. Um, but the, the credit markets today are just blowing up so terribly that uh, the bond markets are quite volatile. Okay. Okay. So potentially a place to look into, but it's, it's not necessarily the hiding place that it, that it might be in other, in other parts of history. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. Yeah. And then if you get into a world where you have a fed pivot, if you have a fed pivot, then bonds are going to not do well because um, there's also an, a market dynamic Okay, like think about it this way. If the Fed is backstopping the credit markets, then it's in the it's in the best interest of the private markets for oh no, I have this I have this inverted. There's a there's a price if the Fed pivots, it affects the price of the bonds, right? And um mm-hmm. I guess actually it would raise the bonds back to par. So that would be good for bonds. But I don't know. I'm not a credit trader. But your yield is but your yield is going down. Your yield would go down. That's right. That's right. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Bonds are just an animal. Like I've tried to wrap my head around bonds and I've never been comfortable enough to any to actually deploy any capital. But I saw a tweet that was like someone was saying, you know, essentially the six month bond yield is equivalent roughly to the cap rate on like a residential real estate uh like property and so his whole point was why would i go through all the trouble of buying residential real estate fixing up the bathroom the kitchen and renting that out and you know having to stay on someone about paying the rent and setting up all the utilities all that kind of stuff right all that complexity just for the same cap rate of return return mm-hmm. on investment as I could get with a six month bond. And I think it was it's, just very, it was very good, interesting to me. It's a good question. It's a good question. I think it's a matter of your risk profile and what, what the person's comfortable with. Um, yeah. You know, with real estate, you're, you're very much in control of the, of the asset. You can make it better. You can make it worse with a bond. You have a counterparty and who knows what that would happen to that counterparty. I'll, I'll say one more thing too. the, whenever, 
what the environment we're in right now where global liquidity is dropping where the where the banking sector is basically soaking up all the excess liquidity through raising interest rates in that world you you insolvency becomes much more likely um because a lot of asset prices tank and a lot of businesses are propped up on asset prices and if asset prices tank then they become impaired to the extent that they cannot repay their bond. And so you could have, I think bonds are like, I don't, yeah, I'm not an expert, but I think you, you, with bonds, they're relatively stable, but then all of a sudden you could just like, it, go, it could go to zero almost immediately. Right. Because suddenly mm-hmm. the person, there's like some tail risk event that makes that to- totally insolvent and, and, the, and the, the lender or the lendee is, is bankrupt. So yeah. there's there's counterparty as well, right? Yeah. Counterparty risk. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that was a pretty good good discussion of uh of the all of the happenings, not all of them, but a good amount of the happenings of today. Uh I don't think we mentioned it, but the the Fed did raise rates yesterday, so 75 basis points. And so yeah, we just continued this climb. I was looking this morning the the average 30-year interest rate right now is like 6.38%. So oh my gosh. Yeah, just, I saw I saw a metric which was that a year ago when you could when you could take out like a two or two or three percent mortgage, the same the same home like a year ago was like six hundred thousand is now three hundred and eighty thousand. That yeah. is a huge difference, dude. Difference between a four hundred thousand dollar house and a six hundred thousand dollar house is a big difference, <laughs> right? I mean, essentially, I, I've seen people say, and I, I mean, I don't know if you have any opinion on this, but does that mean that, like, by default, the real estate market is overvalued by twenty five to thirty percent? Yeah, just because the yeah. purchasing power now has just drastically nosedived from it, what people could afford to what they can afford now. Yeah, it, it does mean that it's not quite that severe. Since real estate is so illiquid, it can't be, you know, traded around. Um and there's also utility in it that it's not like it's not like a direct correlation, but you can say confidently that the existing real estate market is overpriced based on those numbers. It's just a matter of how much, you know. Does that does it also play does the if I'm like if I own would I own a condo, I'm definitely get, staying in like I'm not selling my condo because then what interest rate do I need to, do I go into next? Right. Yeah. Right. So, so then that squeezes supply. Right. So does that, does it pretty much almost like offset each other where yes, the underlying, like the payments for new mortgages is much higher. So people that will drive demand down yeah, but it's, it's, yeah, supply there's... is also going down because people are staying put just because they've locked in literally the most magical lowest mortgage rate that probably we'll ever see in history. There is a reflexivity there, but on net, people could rent. So you could sell and then you could rent. There mm-hmm. could be there could be an arbitrage in renting, actually. So so you st- on net, you'll still have an increased supply come into the market because okay. people, people driving think- prices down. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but real estate's a tricky beast. I mean, I go back and forth on real estate. I don't I can't figure out if we're gonna live in a world where real estate is incredibly politicized or if it, if real estate is really fundamental to to like this sense of property rights. And because uh, I think that's kind of the a useful framing. If it's if it's mm-hmm. if it's politicized, then it's gonna be deflationary it's going to be commoditized it's going to be well i don't know about it it will make a bad investment if it's politicized and then if it is like if i don't know actually there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of moving pieces yeah it's so local too that's the it's just so unique in that way that every other asset is like either national or international Mm-hmm. And it operates the same whether you're in California or Mississippi, right? But real estate is that very unique beast of like location, local location matters a whole lot. So 
Yeah, the kicker, yeah. the kicker with the real estate market is the the thing that makes the Fed afraid, I think, is is rent prices actually. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think they care much about I think net net mortgages and property ownership will kind of is mostly a stable or reliable and like part sector of the economy. But mm-hmm. if you if you get into the world where you have really high rent prices, then you're really you're really pushing the the small guy down. Right. And and that's that's bad for for politics. Yeah. All right. Well, we did our best to try to have some positive things. Hopefully your weather is uh wherever you are is good, listener. Um and yeah. Well, we hope to try to find some bright spots maybe next week. Maybe there'll be some good news. Um, I thought I thought it was yeah. pretty good pod. We uh, it was good. It is it is a nice day outside, you know. So I'm I'm really, I'm actually really looking forward to getting outside. You gonna go on a walk today? Oh, for sure, for sure. Good. I will probably match you on that and also go on a walk. So I walk almost. Alrighty. Back. There you go. I love it. I'm a serial walker. All right. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, that that does it for this episode, episode 29, I think. So thanks for listening, everyone. And we will be back next week. All right. Bye-bye.